what if, what if there was no jar of leeches, no faulty clutch, no old fuel gauge? The pop historian Philip Mason, in his interestingly entitled book, Napoleon's Hemorrhoids, imagines the last 200 years without those three things. One, a jar of leeches, two, a faulty clutch, three, an old fuel gauge. For Mason explains that on the 16th of June, 1815, a jar of leeches was lost by a French field doctor. And as a result, when Napoleon was suffering uh, whilst using the bathroom, his doctor gave him another remedy, which meant that on the morning of the 18th of June, 1815, Napoleon was very drowsy and unable to ride his horse, which in turn delayed his assault on the British, which lost the Battle of Waterloo, uh, which ended the Napoleonic Wars, which ushered in decades of peace in Europe, which allowed scientific advancement such that the world had never seen before. As a result, Mason asks, what if, what if, it weren't for those jar of leeches. What might our pasts, our futures, our present have been? Likewise, many historians have not only pondered that the leeches of 1815, but also a simple clutch pedal of 1914. For on the 28th of June, 1914, an open-top car carrying Archduke Franz Ferdinand randomly stalled in front of a Serbian revolutionary and as a result, Ferdinand was shot dead, which caused the Austro-Hungary to declare war on Serbia, which caused Germany to declare war on Russia, which then caused them to declare war on France, which caused Britain to declare war on Germany, which caused World War I and the death of 37 million people. What if? What if it wasn't for that faulty clutch pedal? What might our pasts and our futures and our present have been. But even more decisively, perhaps, and closer to home, what about an old fuel gauge in 1962? From the 22nd of October 1962, in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, an American B-52 warplane carrying a nuclear missile strayed 300 miles into Soviet airspace, totally by accident. And so two Russian fighters were sent up to destroy it, and the Russian defense general recalling this historic event said, on my Moscow screen, I could see two green dots, the two Russian MiGs, and one red dot, the USB-52 converging. And no one doubted that if that red dot disappeared off the screen, there would have been an atomic war. But when the, the, the dots were only two and a half minutes apart, the two green ones suddenly reversed, for it turned out that one old fuel gauge happened to read low. What if? What if it weren't for that old fuel gauge? What might our pasts, our futures, our present have been? Well, if you look carefully at the passage that Carter just read to us, you'll see that the Apostle Paul gives us a fourth opportunity to play the game of historical what if uh, this morning. Because having given us eyewitness proof last week for its historical occurrence, Paul asks, what if an object even less significant than a jar of leeches, a faulty clutch pedal, and an old fuel gauge was not there? For what if, 
In a small tomb on the outskirts of Jerusalem on the morning of the 5th of April, AD 33, there was no cloth. For what if that which Jesus of Nazareth was buried in, that we read earlier of in our service, was not neatly folded? What if that heavily guarded tomb in Jerusalem still contained a corpse wrapped in linen? What if the clothed body of Jesus was produced to the delight of every authority who had sought to silence his claims? What if there was no resurrection of Jesus? What if it weren't for that folded cloth? What might our pasts and our futures and our present have been? Indeed, let me ask you before we begin, did that cloth really change your yesterday? Could that cloth really change your tomorrow? And does it have any bearing at all on what you'll do for the rest of today? Well, tragically, as we saw last week, the Christians in the first century Greek city of Corinth were beginning to say that it didn't have any bearing at all. For to Paul's astonishment, they were starting to, to lose their grip on the essentials of the gospel, verse 2. And so as his letter hits its crescendo here, he reminds them of the basics that they must hold on to, that Christ died for their sins, verse 3, and was raised, verse 4. In short, Paul tells them that they should hold on because it is true. Now, their Greek culture, much like our own culture, may have scoffed and said when people die, they, they just rot. But the resurrection, says Paul, it really happened in history. The cloth was neatly folded and the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared physically from the dead. That's verse 5. He appeared to Peter, to the 12, to 500 brothers, to James, to all the apostles and me. We all saw it. Jesus was raised, said Paul last week in verses 1 to 11. And that, Paul says this week in verses 12 to 34, that matters to everyone everywhere. Even if you're here this morning and you think it matters just for somebody else, it matters for you, for your past, for your future, and your present. And so rather neatly in this section, we find each of uh, those paragraphs about our alternative past and our alternative future and our alternative present as Paul plays this historical game of what if. And begin with our past, Paul asks, what if there was no cloth? What if Christ did not rise? And the answer he gives, kind of summarizing that first paragraph, is if Christ did not rise, you have a pitiful past. That's point one this morning. If Christ did not rise, you have a pitiful past. And there are three reasons for this pitifulness. Uh, we find the first in verse 13. Have a look with me. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Why is the Corinthians' past pitiful without the resurrection? Well, first of all, first sub-point, because those who discipled you must therefore be deceivers. Your disciples were deceivers. Paul takes them back to a time when he first preached to them in Acts 18, and their tr childlike trust in him, and he says, if the resurrection didn't happen, we deceived you. 
If Jesus wasn't raised, what kind of pastors did you have? If Jesus didn't rise, we have a sorry past together. For I deliberately discipled you in, in deceit. Verse 14. Most miserably of all, I, I misrepresented God. Verse 15. Can you see, but belief about the resurrection, just like all theological belief, is not something that sits in a relational vacuum. What Christians say about God represents God. For all Christians bear God's name. And so what Christians say to one another about God, that that affects what other Christians believe and and then how we see our past with one another. That's why it's so pitiful when Christian pastors lie to their congregations and misrepresent God by preaching something more palatable. That's why it's so pitiful when, when Christian parents downplay hard doctrine as they disciple their children because ultimately trust breaks down and the, and the kids end up thinking, what was that teaching? Can I believe anything about God anymore? And what kind of relationship do I have with mum and dad now? But Paul says the very opposite here. He says, I didn't misrepresent God to you. I did not lie. I saw it and I loved you enough to preach it to you. Your past, our past, is not in vain. Your past conversion is not vanity. Your past discipleship is not vanity. Our past together would only be pitiful if you didn't believe that which I discipled you in. But second sub-point, and far more importantly, if Christ did not rise, you have a pitiful past because your debt was not dealt with. Your debt was not dealt with. For next verse, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Last Sunday afternoon, I had lunch uh, with some fellow Nashville pastors. Uh, We talked and prayed about our ministries as we enjoyed some Indian food together. Uh, But to get home to our families, uh, we decided to skip dessert. And as a result, upon discovering that my family were still out and I had just a few minutes left uh, on my parking meter, I decided to treat myself uh, to dessert. It was Father's Day after all, and upon concluding that this year I'd been an above-average European father, I thought I'd pop into Whole Foods and get some above-average European chocolate. But being a bit of a cheapskate dad, I got the cheapest one that I could possibly find, uh, some kind of hazelnut thing from Switzerland, which cost just $2.39. And I sped to the checkout service, and speedily found the picture of the chocolate, and uh, even more swiftly tapped my credit card on the screen. But as I left the checkout quickly and glanced behind me, I watched as an exasperated assistant angrily snatched up my receipt that I'd accidentally left in the machine and threw it away in a passing trash can. And for about 10 seconds, as I decided to nevertheless casually stroll towards the exit anyway, towards the towering security guard. I got kind of weirdly nervous. I don't know if that's happened to anyone else. A stream of odd questions started to go through my mind. Now, now what if the security alarm goes off when I leave? Did I tap the right picture on on the checkout screen? What if I tapped a, a picture of an even cheaper Twix bar? Do they even sell Twix bars in Whole Foods? And did my credit card work? Did I hear the beep? What if that security guard stops me now? Could I take him? No. (laughs) Could I outrun him? Maybe. 
what if my pastor friends see me bursting out of Whole Foods, Swiss chocolate bar in hand, out sprinting a 200 pound security guard? And what if he caught me? Would I be jailed? My kids have to come to the police station on Father's Day? Why didn't I just grab that free Andy's mint on the restaurant? What was the root of my 10 second panic? Well, I'd rejected the receipt. It's now rubbish. The chocolate may have only cost $2.39, but I had no proof that my debt was dealt with. And that, says Paul, that is the issue if you reject the resurrection. Because amongst other things, which you'll see in this passage, the resurrection is God's receipt to us. That the folded grave clothes left in the tomb was not ultimate proof to us that Jesus had just left this earthly store in a hurry, but proof to us that Jesus had paid our price once and for all. Now, some of us here perhaps believe that we only have taken $2.39 worth from God's store. As some of us here grasp rightly how much we owe, and none of us here realize how much our debt really is. But whoever you are, no one here is righteous, not even one. We are all morally bankrupt, and only Christ can pay for our sin. And wonderfully, at the cross, Jesus checked out for us, and the resurrection is God's receipt given. As Paul says in Romans 4, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see, the work of God saving us is both cross and resurrection. Yes, Jesus' payment, his death on the cross, is fully sufficient to pay the debt that we owed, but in order for the payment to be confirmed, in order that we may know God's justification, that our past sins are paid for, Jesus must rise as he promised, and gloriously, he did. He did. And so, friends, whether we are quick to believe that all our sin is paid for, or whether we are prone to doubt our forgiveness, what magnificent assurance we may have if we hold on to God's real receipt that shows that Christ's payment for sin was accepted. Whether we grew up in a home where forgiveness was demonstrated really well to us or perhaps just disregarded, what childlike joy we may know and feel. Whether we are young and think we've only racked up $2.39 or whether we're much older and we see decades of sinful debt, what magnificent confidence we may have as we near life's checkout. And we meditate not upon how little we owe, but on how much debt has been dealt with. As we meditate upon the resurrection, a receipt, a receipt placed in real geography, time-stamped in real history, Christ's rising, which wonderfully allows us to look back and say, I am no longer in sin. But in contrast... As Paul says here, what pitiful lives, what pitiful lives we endure if we don't. What nervous on edge Christians we become if we throw away that receipt 
If we become like the world which, which mocks the eyewitness accounts, if we try to appease the world, like many liberal theologians do, and listen to a liberal Christianity which says there is no need to believe any nonsense about Jesus rising from the dead, whether Jesus rose or not is irrelevant. For the resurrection is just a picture of hope, just a picture, new life, transformation, fresh start, Jesus' ideals living on. What pitiful theology that punctures any true hope. No wonder such inflated acts of, of charity work and public service reside in a liberal resurrection-denying church for a theologically liberal Christianity that denies the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a Christianity with, with no receipt for past sins, which ultimately is a Christianity which trusts in self, which ultimately is a cruel Christianity. For in screwing up and trashing God's receipt, it only makes true believers anxious as they head towards life's checkout. If Christ did not rise, you have a pitiful past. Your disciples were deceivers, and your debt was not dealt with. And thirdly, your dearest were not delivered. Verse 17, look again. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then verse 18, or therefore, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Can you see the next historical consequence as Paul looks back? If, if the grave clothes were not there, if there is no resurrection of Jesus, verse 16, then sinners are still in their sins, verse 17, and if sinners are still in their past sins, then your dearest friends and your dearest family members who are Christians were not delivered. They've gone. They've gone through that heavenly checkout, and they have exited that the earthly superstore already, and they have no receipt in their right hand. And so you may have no hope of where they're headed. And indeed, Paul says that you may only really have confidence of hell. For the Greek word here, perished, carries with it the notion of God's judgment. And so if Christ has not risen, that the most pitiful results regarding your believing friends is not that you won't get to hug them again, but rather that their debt is outstanding and it is too late to pay. They've not been delivered, and now they face the sovereign security guard without any receipt of resurrection. In Jesus' own words, the unforgiven will never get out until they have paid the very last penny. If you can bear it for a second, says Paul, consider those dearest Christians in your past, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, godly grandparents who guided you, who've gone, parents who prayed with you, who have now passed, faithful friends who have died in the faith, what hope can you possibly have for them if Christ was not raised? What I passed, you must endure. As you think of your disciples past, your debt past, your friends past, no wonder Paul concludes his first paragraph. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ did not rise, you have a pitiful past. But in verse 20, uh, the rules of the game kind of change. Uh, the rules of the historical what-if game. Uh, for Paul, in the rest of our passage this morning, asks not the, the fantasy question, what if Christ didn't rise, 
but rather the factual question, what if Christ did rise? And firstly, what does that mean for your future? A second major heading this morning, if Christ did rise, you have a fruitful future. If Christ did rise, you have a fruitful future. Next paragraph, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Why is the future of the dead Christian actually fruitful? Well, because Christ is the first fruit. And what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the first fruit was the first produce to fall from the tree at harvest time, which was meant to give great hope for what would follow on afterwards. In our old house, uh, in our old backyard in London, uh, there was an old apple tree. And it gave us some pretty good privacy in busy London, but it didn't give us good fruit. Uh, nevertheless, every summer without fail, my daughter Lydia uh, would toddle up to me and would excitedly uh, present to me our, our very first apple from our harvest from that tree. Uh, the apple was normally 50% brown, 40% uh, mummified white, and 10% uh, worm-eaten. And then in an innocent three-year-old tone, she would say, Daddy, can I eat it? To which my rare daddy-daughter response was no. And not only no to that particular apple, but no to any apple at all that fell for the rest of the summer. And why? Well, because the first fruit told me exactly what the rest would be like. That these apples all belong to the same rotten tree, and these apples deserve to rot in our yard. And that's the image that Paul kind of has in his mind here. Except kind of mixing metaphors, Paul moves from kind of harvests to humanity and from trees to family trees. Because then Paul essentially says, verse 22, that the Adam was the first fruit of humanity. And the, the, the fruit of Adam was sin, and so in Adam all die. That the fruit of his loins were all rotten and so destined to rot. Indeed, Genesis chapter 5 captures this in a really striking way. Adam lived so many years, and then he died. His son lived so many years, and then he died. And his son lived so many years, and then he died. And on it goes. If you are in Adam's family tree, you die. And so from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, that was the walk of life. That was the, that was the death cycle of humanity. Rotten people are destined to rot. But astonishingly, says Paul in verse 22, at Jesus' resurrection, that cycle was finally broken. For in Christ, a new first fruit fell from the tree. And this righteous fruit has been raised from death. Indeed, he has been picked up and held aloft in delight. And so now the one who is found in Christ at the day of harvest does not rot, but rises with him. And that is the first of three things which we know about the future of those in Christ. If you are in Christ, you will also rise. You will also rise. For verse 22, just look at Paul's logic here. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, those who trust 
in the payment of Christ. Those who treasure that receipt of the resurrection. Those who are in Christ by faith and and so are forgiven. Those in his family tree and so those who, who bear his fruits. They can have confidence that they will not rot in Adam. But wonderfully, they can have confidence that they will rise in Christ. I love how the Puritan minister Thomas Watson encouraged the dying members of his own church with these words. For as he visited believers nervous of their future, uncertain that they would make it through the night, he would often say to them by their bedsides, well, you know that for those of us who are in Christ, we are more sure to raise, arise out of our graves than out of our beds. Friends, what wonderful news we have to preach to, to dying people as dying people. Whether we have the chance to explain it by the bed of a hospitalized church member, by the bed of a healthy child, it really is truth worth sharing, isn't it? It really is. Because of his rising, you shall be raised too. If you trust in him, you will rise also. But Paul's not done encouraging us yet. For he has not drawn out all this resurrection fruit. For not only will we, being united to Christ, being tethered to him, rise with him at the end, but also we shall reign with him. Uh, second subpoint of point two, if you're still following. Uh, you shall also reign. You shall also reign. Verse 23. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. On the 28th of September, 1066, there was another object that caused a big turning point in history. It was a lowly arrow. For William, uh, William the Norman, uh, returned to England with an army and he landed on the beaches of Hastings. And 17 days later, as recorded by the famous uh, Bayer Tapestry, uh, William defeated the Anglo-Saxon King Harold uh, because someone shot an arrow right through Harold's eye. And as a result of that arrow, William was essentially the reigning king of England. The Battle of Hastings was won. The battle was done. But William, now William the Conqueror, was not submitted to immediately, for he was not coronated yet. Indeed, although William had hoped that the rest of, of Anglo-Saxon England would, would instantly submit to him, they did not. And so what did William's army have to do next? Well, unlike King Charles a few weeks ago, uh, they had a longer and less triumphant coronation march. For they had to meander over 70 miles up through the south of England from the beach of battle to London, proclaiming to every Saxon that William was now king. And no doubt, some Saxons didn't celebrate very much. Uh, no doubt, some scoffed at their victory, and no doubt some shot at them or screamed at them. No doubt some of William's army were scarred more by that proclamation than the battle. Indeed, no doubt as they entered stubborn village after stubborn village, some even questioned William's victory themselves and wondered whether they would ever rule this land. But how they felt about it, William reigned. Victory had been won, and the English crown awaited, and it was only a matter of time. And so, my Christian friends, so it is with us. So it is with us. 
that the resurrection was Jesus' decisive victory battle. And so King Jesus reigns as Lord already. And though we don't know the date, we await his certain coronation now. And so in a sense, we reign with him already. But now, now the task is proclamation as we give rebels the chance to submit. Accordingly, the Christian life is hard, isn't it, sometimes? For in some seasons, we we forget that, that big picture. We forget where we are on the map. For sometimes we find ourselves metaphorically in a, in a stubborn Saxon village with people screaming at us or, or shooting at us. And consequently, we're often tempted either to force Norman laws on Saxon people or to just quietly blend in with Saxon life so well that nobody notices any re- regime change at all. Rather than very kindly declaring that the battle was won, the war is over, and you may reign too if you submit to the conquering king. Friends, it's very easy to forget our future, isn't it? To get caught up in the the kind of the land that we march through. To get caught up in the fleeting politics, the material goods, rather than moving forward, proclaiming Jesus is king and that we shall rule with him forever soon. Friends, Christ's rising to reign means that you shall reign with him too soon. And verse 26, not only shall those in Christ reign in his land, but you shall remain in his land forever. Did you notice that? Because verse 26, the last enemy to destroy is death. You see, on Christmas Day, 1066, after the last rebellious Anglo-Saxon submitted, the end came. For Edgar Atheling, the last Saxon, the, 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 the chap that, that the Anglo-Saxons had tried to crown as king instead of William, the very last enemy submitted to William, and now with all his enemies under his feet, William was now crowned officially as king, such that his men could remain in the land forever. Friends, if we're Christians, that is our fruitful future in Christ. When we die, we shall rise to be with Christ. At the very end, we shall reign with Christ. And when death, the last enemy, is destroyed and Jesus lays all down at his Father's feet, there we shall remain with Christ and his kingdom, for there shall be no more death. We shall live forever and ever with new bodies, in new days, in a new creation that we will never want to end. And again, we have that hope. We have it certainly because of that cloth in April AD 33. All because, in fact, Christ has been raised. And so final paragraph, and far more quickly, what of our present? We've seen that the resurrection of Christ has has massive consequences for our past and our future, but what should it mean for our present? Uh, Point three this morning, final point. If Christ did rise, you are knowledgeable now. If Christ died, you are knowledgeable now. In in the final verse, Paul kind of shames the Corinthians for their living, uh, for their living as though they had no knowledge of their resurrection. Indeed, he concludes verse 34, some of you have no knowledge, some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. In short, non-believers don't know any of this, and they don't know about God the Father raising God the Son, but shamefully, you do. You are knowledgeable, so live as if you are knowledgeable right now. 
if your yesterday is gloriously that, if your tomorrow is, is gloriously this, Corinthians, sort it out. Sort out your today. Live consistently with the knowledge you have now. And you know, in some ways, they actually were. They were living as though the resurrection was true. For verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, much ink has been spilt in this verse. And honestly, I don't think we can say with great certainty exactly what's going on here. If you really want the most likely explanation, you can come and find me at the end if that's your thing. But whatever was happening, the point is that the Corinthians were baptizing people. And so they were actually living consistently with the resurrection. For if they baptized, showing their unity to Christ by going down into the water and thus identifying with Christ and his death, then presumably they also showed their unity to Christ by being raised up out of the water, thus identifying with Jesus and his resurrection. Unless there were lots of drownings in the church baptistry. They believed the resurrection. And so Paul says, you silly Corinthians... You don't even live consistently with your false beliefs. So keep living consistently with the knowledge that you have. And so practically, what did that mean for the Corinthians? To live consistently, knowledgeably, in the light of their union with Christ. And what does it mean for us to be knowledgeable too? To identify with Christ in his baptism, with his death and resurrection today. Well, again, Paul highlights three things for how the knowledge, that knowledge should affect now. First of all, he says you must suffer. You must suffer. For in contrast to the Corinthians who lived like they were not going to be raised but just lived for comfort now, Paul's knowledge of the resurrection causes him to forego comfort. For unlike many of them, Paul did not, not preach on a Sunday morning, only to then go out on Monday night, throwing up in a Greek temple after a night of gluttony and drunkenness. No, no, Paul was willing to go without wild living, without that, that first century Greek frat boy lifestyle. Indeed, more than that, Paul was willing to go with physical suffering now. Verse 30, because of the resurrection I suffer physical danger every hour. Verse 31, I suffer physical death every day. Verse 32, I fight physical beasts in Ephesus. Friends, can you see that the holding onto the truth of the resurrection often means that we have to go through physical suffering first. We may feel physically sick at the thought of speaking to our friends about Jesus, but if we believe the resurrection, we'll speak. We may be physically less comfortable as we give up material goods for the sake of supporting a missionary, but if we believe, the resurrection will support. In days to come, maybe we'll have to do a Paul, but if we believe, the resurrection will stand and we'll be willing to suffer. For Revelation chapter 4, the risen Christ says to his church, Do not fear about what you are to suffer. Be faithful unto death, for I will give you the crown of life. If you believe in the resurrection, if you're united to Christ, in the present you must suffer, but also secondly, you must stay sober. You must stay sober. Friends, if we could build a time machine this morning 
and we could travel back to Corinth. Well, well in the morning, uh, we'd see people relaxing in, in, in baths or at the gymnasium. And in the afternoon, we'd see people at one of the many beauty parlors or at the Corinthian theater being entertained. And in the evening, we'd see people at, at one of the, the temples of the Greek gods eating so much uh, sacrificed uh, meat that they would vomit just so that they could uh, eat some more or drinking so much wine that they'd think little of sexual liaisons with minors. Because Corinth was a city that lived and breathed the dreams of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. In fact, that's the philosopher that Paul quotes in verse 32. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And that makes total sense, doesn't it? For those people who have no resurrection hope, Indeed, many people today, those who, who do not have such hope, are excitedly driving into Nashville right now, this very moment, with those words ringing in their ears. For verse 32 is essentially plastered all over the, 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 the Nashville party buses and the pedal taverns. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Paul agrees. If there is nothing beyond the gain, if there's nothing beyond the grave, get sloshed. If you know that there is, sober up. Sober up. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor and stop sinning. And some of us might just need that this morning. That very blunt, ice-cold water imperative of verse 34 that, that Paul kind of throws on the faces of those in the church who were just committed to absolute hedonism when they knew better in a hopeless world. And some of us might need that, that, that rousing call, wake up, stop sinning, be sobered by the truth of the resurrection that you will not sleep in the grave, but all will rise to stand before God's throne. And that the risen and reigning Christ, he knows what you do every single night in Nashville and all will be dragged into the light at the end. Yes, Christian, all be forgiven. Do not fear, because you have the receipt of his resurrection, but let that glorious resurrection receipt sober you, rather than send you back into sin. You must suffer. You must stay sober. And finally, verse 33, you must separate. You must sometimes separate. It's sandwiched between two very obvious verses about uh, suffering and then soberness. Paul ends with one very, very practical application about our social life. Did you notice that? Which is surprising, isn't it? I don't know how you expect Paul to conclude. Maybe, uh, so, you know, do get your head in a, a theology textbook. Do spend a bit more time thinking about praying, won't you? But he doesn't. Instead, he says very practically, verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Paul quotes one of their own thinkers again. This time, not the, the Greek philosopher Epicurus, but this time the Greek poet Meander. Bad company ruins good morals. It's quite surprising, isn't it? That the high value that Paul places on those whom we live among for, for holding on to the resurrection. For in essence, Paul gives them the same advice that, that my mum and dad gave to me when I started high school. Jonathan, choose your friends carefully. Choose your friends carefully. Accordingly, let me ask you, 
as I ask myself, who do you choose to spend time with? Whose company do you keep? Who are your influencers? Friends, can you see what Paul is encouraging? If we're not going to live for now, but for later, we need to live amongst other people who also know that they will rise. Now, that's not to say that we won't have non-Christian friends. Of of course we will. Indeed, if you're a non-Christian here, we honestly want to be your friend. We want to tell you uh, more about the hope that you can have. We want to share life with you. We really do. But as Christians, it will mean that we don't spend all of our time, maybe even the majority of our time, with those who are not living like they'll rise. Because earthly company erodes eternal hope. And like the the rusting of a once shiny bicycle left left in the rain, it is often not a quick process. But slowly, as we acclimatize to the friendship ecosystem around us, we will begin to live like those who do not last. And why? Because God has made us to be imitators. It's how he set up this, this world. Influencers are not a thing of our generation. We're all wired to look for leaders, for friends. And so if your social life is framed only by those people who are not living like they're going to rise, don't be surprised if you wander off into sin. Sometimes you must be willing to separate from the crowd, which does not mean loneliness, wonderfully, but it means working hard, doesn't it, to keep better company. Friends, the Christian life is hard. We have a certain resurrection to come, but sometimes that tomorrow feels a very long way off, and we're already weathered by the world. Accordingly, we all need Christian friends. We all need a local church. Those who will galvanize us. Those who will keep uh, kind of coating us with the brush strokes of resurrection truth that prevent corrosion of a Christ-like character. Friends, friends are so important. We need to be actively working on our friendships. Some of us need to stop pretending that our our church attendance somehow equates to deep Christian friendship. Some of us need to make friends in the first place. And that can be hard for people who are new, who are shy. But we need to make the time to get to know one another, to encourage one another with resurrection truth. And we need to be humble enough to let others encourage us in those ways. For Paul tells Christians to be in each other's lives, to be in each other's company, to to pray with each other, to to help one another through the difficulties of life in a world that thinks that, that death is just the end, and to boldly stand in the resurrection light and to come every single Sunday when we wonderfully celebrate it and sing, our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. We're going to do that right now. But before that, we're going to pray. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you that your Son has risen. We thank you that we hold the truth in our hands that the truth that your son physically rose from the dead. Father, we praise you that because of his sacrifice, we are free, we are forgiven. All our debt was dealt with. And not only our debt, 
for the doubt of all our Christian loved ones, those living now, those who have passed away, to be with you. And Father, we praise you that because Christ rose, that gloriously we will rise too. That the being in him, we will live and reign and die no more. And we thank you that this is true. And that we know it. So Father, would you help us please? Help us to live in light of it. Help us to stand in its wonderful light, to proclaim it, and to live holy lives in keeping with it. And please would you encourage our hearts now as we sing with our friends. Amen.